Well, friends, the, uh, the text that we come to this morning in our ongoing study of the Gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. And we're going to read that aloud together. I would ask you to stand. I'm sorry, I'm going to read it aloud to you. And I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. When I'm done reading it, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond together. Thanks be to God. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, as we've been making our progress through the Gospel of Mark, the question that has risen among Jesus' disciples, the crowds there, and continues to arise more and more as we'll make our progress through the Gospels is, who is this man? It's an understandable question, given the way that Jesus has conducted himself, given the way that he's taught, given the way that he's, the works that he's done. People have wondered, who on earth is this guy? It's an incredibly important question, not only for his disciples, but for the crowds, for his enemies. In fact, Jesus himself, you remember, asks his disciples, who do they think that he is? And some of the most significant moments in the Gospels come when people answer this question, when Peter answers, when the centurion at the cross answers. And friends, the question of who exactly is Jesus Christ remains Maybe the most relevant question one can ask even today. Beyond all other concerns in our lives, which will all pass away, this one will not. Who is Jesus Christ exactly? What we make of him, what we think about him, will in the end matter when all other things have ceased to matter. In the passage that I just read to you that we're going to consider this morning Some people make their assessment of who Jesus is. They think they know. And he responds to them. And that's instructive for us. By considering this passage today, we're going to be reminded and understand further, Lord willing, what the truth about Jesus really is. My outline for you today has three points. First, we're going to talk about uh, the assessment others make of our Lord Then we're going to talk about his response to them. 
And then finally, we're going to consider briefly a warning that he gives. First, let's consider the wrong assessment of the Lord that is made by others, both those close to him and by his enemies. Mark tells us in verse 20, then he went home. If you remember, Jesus was out in the region of the Sea of Galilee, having withdrawn from the more populous areas when the scribes and the Pharisees began to actively seek to kill him. The crowds had continued to follow him, though, and even out in rural areas, he was in danger of being mobbed and crushed as he taught and healed. But he could not live in the wilderness indefinitely, of course, and here Mark tells us that he returns home. Now, home is likely a reference to Simon Peter's mother's house in Capernaum, where we've already seen some of the events of the first few chapters of the gospel take place. This house was serving as a sort of home base for Jesus and his disciples at this point, and it's likely that that was where he was returning in verse 20. Now, of course, the crowd gathered again. If they found him out in the wilderness, they're surely going to find him here in the city, and they do. And they gather in such numbers around him and with such eagerness to get to Jesus that he could not even eat, the text tells us. The needs pressing in on him and his disciples were so great that he could not get even a moment free to sit down in privacy and eat something. Now, this would be a pattern in his ministry. We'll see the same circumstances again in chapter 6. But I want to point out to you first the assessment made by those close to him here. In verse 21, we read, and when his family heard it. The phrase we have translated, his family, uh, could more literally be rendered those close to him or his people, but very likely it is a reference to his biological family, his half-brothers, maybe sisters, his mother, Mary, as they are specifically mentioned in the very next section here in verse 31 of Mark chapter 3. His family heard it, though, and heard, heard what? Heard that he had become so immersed in his work that he was no longer caring for himself. He wasn't eating. And so they, understandably, decided to intervene. To them, as you can imagine, Jesus appeared out of control. And so they, I think likely with good intentions, they go to him to try to get him under control. The text says to, to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Now again, this is, a, this is an understandable response. You can imagine from their perspective as a, a mother or a brother, a loved one, hearing this and thinking, he has lost it. All of this preaching, these crowds, praying all night long, this controversy with religious leaders, and now he's not even eating. This is dangerous. He's going to hurt himself. He's going to hurt somebody else. We've got to do something. To them, it surely appeared that he'd gone off the deep end and was acting in a way that was dangerous. They, they mistook his zeal and his devotion to his father's work for dangerous excess. And they accused him of mental instability. That's what they thought of him. Now let me pause here for a moment and point out to you this criticism is something that was not unique to our Lord in his day, and it has been part of the world's response to him and his followers, his people in the church, ever since then. This criticism that devoting oneself completely 
to service to God, throwing oneself into discipleship with abandon, being wholly his, to do that is kind of extreme. It's a little bit crazy, even. Remember, the apostle Paul received this very criticism from Festus in Acts chapter 26. He cries out, Paul, you're, you're out of your mind when Paul is speaking of the gospel. And since that time, many, many missionaries after Paul have heard the same thing. To willingly leave all and to go and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to another land, to endanger family and even self for his name, that is madness, the world might say and does say. Many martyrs over the generations in the church have been seen the same way when they were on trial for their faith, and even when they were at the stake, at the gallows, when their devotion to this unseen God was so firm they would not recant, they would not deny, they would not be silent, even when it cost them their lives, the world looks at that and thinks, this is insane. And today, friends, even though we live in a time and a place where martyrdom is not a daily threat as it has been for our people at other times, the same assessment is still common. The world says, hey, religion is fine. I mean, spirituality is good even in moderation, but let's not be extreme about it. Don't be a nut about it. A little church attendance might be good for you if, it, if you're into that sort of thing. You know, it might give you some community, build some relationships, might help you be more forgiving help you raise your kids better, help you have peace and be more positive in your outlook on life. That's all fine, but let's not go overboard. Don't start talking to me about evangelism or missions or holiness or heaven or hell. My goodness, you're gonna sound like a nut. Some of you might have heard something like that or you have felt something like that from friends from family members, as you have walked the path of Christian discipleship. Well, look, be religious, that's fine, but let's not overdo it. The sense is that a true zeal for Christ to be known and loved and obeyed, especially when such zeal involves sacrifice, that is seen as extreme, unhealthy, even crazy. Just as much today as in the day we're reading about here in Mark chapter 3. But let me remind you, friends, that it is not the judgment of the world, even family and friends, in the end, that matters. And what may appear extreme to men and women around you is actually very reasonable to God and not extreme at all. Think of it this way. If the gospel is true, if heaven and hell really are real, if sin really does need forgiving, if Jesus Christ really does sit on his throne right now, and if only he can save, is telling somebody about that extreme? If this life really is as short and eternity as long as the scriptures say, is sacrifice now for the sake of eternity? Extreme? No. To sacrifice what moth and rust destroy and what thieves can steal for treasure in heaven is supremely sane. This is the, the point in part of those parables in Matthew chapter 13, the, the treasure that's found in the field and the man sells everything to go have it. 
the pearl of great price that the merchant gives everything so that he might purchase. Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The missionary and martyr Jim Elliot is quoted, and this is a well-known quote to many of you, as saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, it is the lukewarmness of much of the church and the supposed moderation of devotion and discipleship that characterizes many Christians that is actually crazy in the end. To say the gospel is true and yet to go on living as if it weren't, that's madness. Now my point is this. Normal biblical Christianity is foolish in the eyes of the world. It always has been. We read it here in Mark chapter 3. It always will be until the Lord returns. Right zeal for his glory and his service will always be misunderstood as foolishness. And true disciples will always receive from well-meaning friends and family advice to be less zealous, more moderate, more lukewarm, really. Do not listen to that kind of advice even if they think you're crazy. The Lord Jesus was not crazy, though he was accused of it, even by those close to him. And neither are you and I if we follow him. But having lost his mind was not the worst criticism that our Lord was receiving at that time. Look back at the text here, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, evidently, his ministry has become significant enough that the council in Jerusalem had sent some scribes down to investigate, and these urban religious professionals came to another conclusion about Jesus entirely, not just that he was out of his mind, but that he was actually a servant of evil. He was, in fact, a tool of the devil. They say, first, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is a a unique and somewhat funny-sounding name to us that Mark records them using here. And a lot of ink has been spilt over the generations about its meaning. To put it very simply, it's likely that Beelzebul is the title of some false god at that time, some regional deity, and the scribes were using it as simply a synonym for the devil. They were accusing Jesus of being possessed by the devil, of being under demonic control. That's not all that they were saying, though. Look back at verse 22. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. They recognized that he was doing mighty works in his ministry, including casting out demons, but they claim that it is by Satan's own power that he's doing them, that even the apparently good work he's doing can be attributed to evil and the power of evil in the end. Now, that's another serious accusation, though maybe not as kind on the surface as the assessment 
that he just lost his mind. This is also another accusation that continues to get traction against Christ and his church even today. In our society, at our time, evil is very much unpersonified. Not many people believe there is a real live devil out there somewhere. We think science has proven otherwise. But there are many today who yet claim that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church founded on his name and the people following in his footsteps are not just wrong, but they're actually dangerous. I mean, that is the stance of what's sometimes referred to as the new atheism, right? That Christians aren't just incorrect, they're not just misguided, they're actually doing harm. Doing harm to people, doing harm to the world. The accusation that real gospel religion is not beneficial for anyone for any reason, and it's actually a vehicle for much evil and destruction. Evil things done over the centuries of human history by wicked people calling themselves Christians are invoked. The Crusades, sex abuse scandals, etc. And the church gets painted as a sort of Trojan horse for evil behavior. Historic Events like the missionary movement are even recast as imperialism and colonialism and oppression, and people begin to talk cynically about the dangers of organized religion, particularly biblical Christianity. Now, this is happening right now, happening right around us. Society, our society is moving in a direction where the exclusive claims of the gospel are increasingly seen as not just wrong and misled, but actually harmful to people. And those who hold them, those who take them seriously, who teach them and seek to convert others, are seen as outright dangerous, doing evil work. There are many young people here in this room who've grown up in this church. You're going to go into college, to the workforce, wherever you go. When you leave your household, when people find out about your commitment to the Lord Jesus, it's likely that you won't just be called crazy, but you'll actually be called bigoted, be called sexist, be called homophobic. You tell someone that you believe that the Bible is actually true, that we did not evolve from primordial ooze, but God actually made us, and he made us male and female. And he designed sexual intimacy to be exclusively within a lifelong marriage covenant between one man and one woman, and that any deviation from that is actually a sin, and that such a sin is worthy of judgment, eternal condemnation, in fact, and that personal faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only way anyone can be forgiven and reconciled to God. You tell someone that you really believe that everyone who does not trust in Jesus Christ personally is actually an enemy of God, whether they know it or not. You tell people that, they're not just gonna laugh at you. They're gonna say you're dangerous. But when they say that, friends, don't listen to them. They said the Lord Jesus was dangerous. He was criticized that way. And so, of course, all who follow him will be criticized that way. Don't be surprised and don't be alarmed. 
Now, that's what the people were saying about Jesus. He's crazy. Nah, he's dangerous. He's evil. Now, let's think about what Jesus says about himself, his self-assessment. He responds to these criticisms in verses 23 to 27, and both, both to the criticism that he's lost his mind and to the criticism that he's a servant of the devil. First, he responds to this accusation about evil, the accusation of the scribes that he's possessed by the devil and doing his works by the devil's power. And the way he responds to them is by pointing out the impossibility of what they are accusing him of, that he's both being used by the devil as a tool and at the same time, he's using the devil's own power to fight against him and casting out demons. Look at verse 23 to 26. He called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You see, what Jesus is pointing out to them is that the accusations they've made about him are actually in conflict with each other and somewhat nonsensical in that way. He can't be both possessed by the devil and at the same time using the devil's power to fight against the devil all at once. It simply doesn't make any sense. If that were the case, the devil would be fighting against himself, which is nonsense. I'll illustrate it for you this way. I have served several times on jury duty in Roanoke City. I know it's supposed to be random. I'm 37 years old. I'm sure I shouldn't have served this many times. One time I served on jury duty for a shooting in my own neighborhood. A couple blocks behind me, a man was shot and killed in the alley. And I ended up on jury duty there. And the man who was uh, on trial, who'd been, been caught on a security camera actually doing this crime, his defense attorney presented two defenses of him. One, that it was an accident. He'd accidentally shot the man. And two, it was self-defense. He was being attacked. And so he shot the man because he was afraid of being killed himself. Now, it can't be both, can it? You can't accidentally kill someone in self-defense, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's, what the man, that's what the man argued, that lawyer, the lawyer was being insincere. I mean, he was just throwing mud at the wall to see if something would stick. His client was on camera doing it. And he was doing so because his client was guilty. Friends, in the same way, the scribes here are just throwing out accusations against our Lord, regardless of how nonsensical and self-contradictory they might be, just to see if something would stick with these crowds. They're just slandering him because they don't have any real accusations about him to make, because he is innocent. The Lord Jesus was not possessed by the devil. He was not using the devil's own powers against him, whatever that even looks like. If that were the case, the devil would be his own enemy, as Jesus said, and he'd be coming to an end. Now, that was obviously not the case. The devil and the powers of evil were not declining here in the first century as Jesus is talking to these crowds. The world was not in a state of progressive perfection with less and less suffering and cruelty. Quite the opposite, in fact. And the devil appeared to be very much large and in charge in the world. 
And the evidence of that was the presence of evil and pain and sorrow everywhere. And this brings us to the next point where Jesus makes it clear that not only is he not a tool of the devil, but he's not crazy and out of his mind either. He's not lost his mind. In fact, he knows exactly what he's doing. In verse 27, he uses a metaphor, a sort of mini parable. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now the meaning of this little story is relatively plain in the context. The strong man in our Lord's story is the devil himself. The strong man's house is the the fallen world in this age where the devil exercises his power and authority. And the goods that he possesses are people like us, human souls, men and women enslaved by sin and death. This is the picture that Jesus paints of the devil and how he's to be understood. Not as a conflicted ruler of a self-destructing empire, as the scribes have implied, but rather as the very real and formidable enemy of God and his people, exercising his power in this fallen and sinful age, and doing so to the great harm of many, many people made in God's image, but enslaved because of sin. Now, the devil's described this way elsewhere in the Scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the Apostle Paul says of of unbelievers, in their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the God of this world, a reference to the devil. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. A reference to the devil here. In Matthew chapter 4, you remember the way the devil spoke to the Lord Jesus when he was tempting him. The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Well, what is he implying? That they're his to give. That he is the strong man, and this is his house. The devil is indeed strong. And this world is, in a very real sense, very much his house. And we are at his mercy. But friends, our Lord Jesus makes it very clear that even this strong man can be overcome. And his possessions can be taken from him. But only if one who is stronger than he comes into his house and binds him. And that is exactly what Jesus is in the process of doing. He is not crazy. He's on a mission. Here is the heart of the matter. Here is what our Lord's answer to those who would say he's out of his mind, that he's lost control. No, he is very much in control. And in fact, he is in the process of asserting his control, his sovereign control over the very devil himself. Far from being crazy and at the mercy of the crowds, or from being controlled by the devil to do his will. Our Lord Jesus has his own plan that he's carrying out, and he knows exactly what he is doing, and that is to enter the devil's house and conquer him and free those who've been in captivity to him. As strong as the devil might be, first among angelic beings with terrible power, with cunning intellect, 
Jesus Christ is still stronger. He is the one stronger than the strong man. The one speaking in this passage, he is God himself. And his entering the world in his incarnation, his taking on human flesh and being born of a woman in time and space as, a, as our brother in this corrupted world, that was very much Jesus entering the devil's house. And now having entered, he is on his way to conquer the strong man. This he will do at the cross. Remember, friends, the devil's power is primarily spiritual power over us. It is the power of deception. It is the power of accusation. He himself does not have the authority to cast anyone into hell. He's not the judge. But what he can do is keep those who are guilty of sin deceived in darkness and denial. And then on the final day, turn and accuse them. This is why he's referred to as the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12. It is the devil's desire, his purpose, to stand before God at the judgment of every human soul and say, in effect, this one has sinned against you. This one has not honored you as he should. She's not worshipped you as she should. And so she has no business receiving reward from you. In fact, justice demands that he suffer the consequences of sin and hell. If you're holy, you must condemn the sinner. And friends, those accusations are true. He's not wrong. Now, if this is the devil's power over us, how can he be overcome? How can the, bind man, the strong man be bound? How can the Lord Jesus take his power away from him and set us free? Well, it's the cross, of course. Here is the wisdom of the cross, that Jesus Christ Himself, sinless, unworthy of condemnation, will willingly take our sins, willingly take our guilt, our shame on his own shoulders, and he will give himself to be judged, to be condemned, to be executed in our place. That's what's happening at the cross, where he is dying as our substitute, where he is atoning for our sin. In doing so, he is taking the devil's power away from him because his accusations no longer have any force for those who've been forgiven, for those whose sins have been atoned for. He can say, that one has sinned, that one deserves only condemnation. But because of Jesus Christ, we can say back, yes, that's true. In fact, devil, you don't, know the, you don't know the half. But Jesus Christ suffered for my sins. My Lord was condemned in my place. The judgment I earned, he has suffered. The debt has already been paid. And so, in him, I am free. Make all the accusations you want, even if they're all true. Jesus Christ suffered for all of it. This is the power of the gospel, friends. This is how Jesus comes and binds up the strong man and frees us from his power by dying on the cross for our sins. That's where Jesus shows his strength. And this really is true. There really is a devil. And all of fallen sinful humanity really is enslaved to him. 
That's the state of every human being in the Roanoke Valley today apart from Jesus Christ. No matter whether, no matter how moral they might be or how spiritual you might be or how sincere or how generous, without Jesus Christ, men and women are under the power of the devil whether they know it or not. And listen, that might sound crazy to you. It might sound crazy to you that I'm saying that. In fact, beyond that, it might sound dangerous to you that I would say something like that. Well, but friends, it is true. That is the state of the human race because of sin, and only Jesus Christ can deliver us. Only he is strong enough to die for us and rise again and take us from our slavery, which he has done. You believe that? Now, Jesus ends his comments here in this passage with a warning, and so I will also end with a warning. Having corrected their wrong assumptions about him and explained exactly who he is and what he's doing, our Lord warns them, his listeners, about making a fatal mistake. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now very much has been written about these verses and much speculation has been done about the nature of the unforgivable sin. To take these verses out of context, they become very mysterious and very troubling. Some saints, like John Bunyan, many years ago, spent years of his life convinced that he had committed the unforgivable sin and so could not be saved. But in the context here, this eternal sin is not all that mysterious, really. It's clearly a warning about the attitude that the scribes themselves had adopted and were demonstrating here before Jesus, that, that his works were actually evil. Jesus is saying, in effect, you think I'm doing the devil's work? Well, be careful. Because if you keep that up, you'll discover in the end there's no forgiveness for you. There can't be forgiveness. And it might help us to think of it this way. While Jesus Christ himself accomplishes our redemption at the cross, it is the Holy Spirit who applies that redemption to each of us personally as individuals, isn't it? It is the Spirit of God who comes to us, each of us, and awakens us, makes our heart tender towards God and his word, convicts us of our sin against him, convinces us that we need to be forgiven and that he himself, God alone, is the only one who can forgive and that because of Jesus Christ, he actually will forgive, that he is willing in his heart of love to forgive, that he, the God who is there, he is merciful and kind and will save those who come to him. It is the Holy Spirit that awakens us to that reality, that gives us spiritual light and life so that we might come to God in Christ and trust in him alone. That's the new birth. And the Holy Spirit is, in that way, the means by which God causes us to be born again and justified and made new. Which is why, if one blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, that is, directly condemns and speaks against the Spirit and persists in rejecting the work that he does and calling it evil, 
There is no forgiveness for that. There can't be. Because the Spirit himself is the means by which sinners are forgiven. And there is no other means. If you reject him, you have, in effect, rejected forgiveness. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate this way. Some of you know my wife and I and our kids live in a relatively old home near downtown in Roanoke. The house is in various degrees of disrepair all the time. Holes in the plaster, leaky ceilings, etc., etc. There are some places to, I confess to you, to my great shame, there's actually a trash bag taped to the ceiling to keep the dust from falling down right now because I haven't patched that hole yet. Our house has got holes everywhere, and our six children are doing, it seems to be, their very best to make more holes, <laughs> to scratch the floor and tear the trim off things and whatever. Um, and I, over the years, I've accumulated a lot of tools for fixing things. I'm not very skilled with them, but I have a lot of tools. And, and they're spread all over the house and all over our shed and you know, in the basement. They're everywhere. Now, imagine for a second if I had all of my tools in one toolbox, a magic, a Mary Poppins toolbox, and all of, my, all of my equipment was in that one toolbox. Now imagine if my kids were moving some stuff around and uh, they, they took my toolbox and they left it outside. And it was open and it was about to start raining. Now imagine if I saw that toolbox out there and I said, boys, boys, no, you can't leave my tools outside. Listen, you can break anything in the house and we can fix it. But if you ruin my tools, I can't fix anything. It's something similar that Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit here. Listen, any sin you commit can be forgiven. Oh, but don't sin against the Holy Spirit. Don't reject the Holy Spirit. Because then the very means by which you might be forgiven is gone from you. You've forsaken that one door through which one can go and be forgiven. Friends, what that means is that nobody who comes to Christ seeking forgiveness will discover that they have committed this unforgivable sin and cannot be saved. No one who goes to Jesus Christ will be turned away if they come in sincere faith. Because the very act of coming to him in faith, the very act of acknowledging our need for him and seeking earnestly his forgiveness, that is evidence of the work of the Spirit. It's evidence that, that we too can be forgiven. No one should ever think, oh, I'd like to be forgiven by God. Oh, it's my heart's desire, but I can never come because I've, I've committed the unforgivable sin. All who come to him are forgiven. It's those who persist in their rejection of him and call in the Spirit's work something evil, saying, no, I will never repent. I'm no sinner, not me. That's the eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness. Now, friends, have you come to him? The Jesus who really is. He's not crazy. He's not evil. He is God himself. And he came with a purpose. His purpose was the redemption of sinners. Has the Spirit of God been working in you? Have you been feeling the weight of your sin? The holiness of the God who is the judge of all. The need to be forgiven by him, reconciled by, to him. If you have, do not harden your heart against him. He is not your enemy. He is not doing the devil's work. 
The evidence of the work that he did is right here on the table in front of me. He gave his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out, so that all who come to him might know forgiveness. Let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ. And oh, Jesus, thank you for enduring people like us, making accusations about you, criticizing you. Thank you for the tenderness of heart that you would even warn them in the midst of their opposition. Thank you for the tenderness of heart that, that took you all the way to the cross. Oh, make our hearts tender towards you. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord. And may we not reject him. May we not fight against him. But may we say in faith with new hearts, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, even me. Save me. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen.